Saturday before the Great War, 13 players from Glentorn Football Club, industrial workers to a man, each of them living in the cramped housing of Ballymacarrett, became the unlikely heroes of a tale which is scarcely believable. Those not familiar with the story are to be forgiven for thinking that Sam Robinson, a writer and Glentorn fanatic, has let his imagination run wild during these gruelling months of lockdown. However, the reality is quite the opposite, because Sam has spent many months trawling through online archives, including those of foreign countries, tracking down individuals and writing an historical account of the underdogs from East Belfast on the European stage. The comedy element of the pub crawls and players going AWOL I think helps us relate to the players as people that we recognise. They weren't the professional footballers of today, but normal people like you and I, and excited to see the world. The winning of the Cup in Vienna is the high watermark of this story. In many ways, the events surrounding it almost made the Cup irrelevant, such were the high stakes. The glory of Vienna was followed then by a dark twist. Heading into the mouth of the First World War, the Glentorn party were forced to run like hell to escape being caught up in the opening exchanges of the conflict. When the war eventually did begin, some of the Glentorn players served in the British Army. Indeed, some of the players who they had faced on the tour served also, but on the opposing side. Herder Berlin, for example, lost 36 men in total during the Great War. And as if that wasn't enough, when the Second World War began in 1939, some of the characters in this story became victims of the Holocaust, while one man was executed for an attempt on the life of Adolf Hitler. You literally couldn't make it up. The Second World War touched Glen Torn too, of course. The club was virtually destroyed during the Belfast Blitz, including the Oval Grounds, the kits, the records, and the trophies all lost except one, which sat on the chairman's mantelpiece, the Vienna Cup. Welcome to episode 13 of the Historical Belfast podcast, this episode being dedicated to Sam Robinson's new book on the Glentorn side that toured Europe in 1914 and brought home a cup won in Vienna. Copies of the book can be obtained by contacting Sam via the One Saturday Before the War Facebook page. Also, if you have any further information to add to the story, particularly on the players, Sam would be delighted to hear from you. If you're new to this podcast, please check out the previous 12 episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast content. And most importantly, please share the episodes on your social media because it really helps people to find it. After reading the book myself then, Sam joined me on Zoom for a chat and I began by asking him how his relationship began with Glentorn Football Club. It all began coming on 50 years ago for me, uh, and 56 now, and uh, there was never any doubt that I'd, I think it's fair to say that I'm a fourth generation Glentorn supporter. Uh, bizarrely, both on both sides of the family were both fanatical followers of the Glens. Uh, and that kind of goes back through pretty much my father taking me in, in initially and him telling me that his father had taken him just before the outbreak of World War II. And and when when I was small and you know the, the, there were tales of sort of folklore and whatever, he would he would regale me with the fact that his, his great-grandfather had also gone to the games. So, so this takes you right back almost to sort of <laughs> the time of the actual Vienna Cup itself when when the family started following the club. It's, it's, like, the, it's like the East Belfast version of Paul Bells where, you know, where I was born into the sort of sound of the cheers from the stadium uh, and, and from my mum's side we're in Solway Street. And so, so from the age of, from no age at all, on a Saturday, it was traditional for all the men folk to sort of gravitate around towards the Oval. And, and I was always fascinated with the big match and, and match of the day and, and seeing them all going and wanting to go and seeing the crowds going. And uh, I just couldn't get that first rate of passage. So my relationship, as I say, started when I was six and it's coming up incredibly half a century now. And for the longest time, all they did was push my way through the turnstiles and things like that. And then uh, in the 90s, 
uh, <laughs> I, I had this random offer of, would you like the, there's nobody, they, they, they actually added the Glen Torn Gazette, the match day program. And uh, I collected the program as a kid and I, I, I saw that it was sort of through the editorials that it was struggling and whatever. And uh, I had a few photographs and I took them down to the guy, one, one of the guys in the 1923 committee, John Parkinson, to sort of say, look, if this helps in any way. And I took two black and white photographs and ended up coming out as, as the editor of the, the, the Max Day program because they were just the nicest people and couldn't say no. And I had no clue what I was doing. And that was probably my first foray into writing. And that, that, that's it. Once, once you sort of sort of cross a Rubicon and you're on the inside and you kind of see it, it intrigues you then, you know, as, as the sort of machinations of how football clubs run and stuff like that. So, so yeah, that added in the program. And then I was, I was, I was part of the, the group that formed the Supporters Trust when, when the Supporters Trust took out of the, the sort of dirty thing of, of the time, you know, when, when clubs were going to the wall, we felt compelled to form a trust uh, to, to try and keep the club afloat and try and, so I was involved in that and, and, and pretty much I've always had an interest since becoming the editor of the Gazette in writing. That was the first writing editor undertaken and, uh, you know, even being the editor of a match programme, you're sort of yeah, you have to know what you can say, what you can't say. It's, it's a great grounding for anybody who's, who's you know, ever thinking of, you know, kind of career and doing stuff like that. You know, certainly it's, uh, you have deadlines to meet and things like that. So, so yeah, that was me off and running. And uh, I was fascinated with the, the stadium itself. And uh stadium's no ordinary stadium. Uh, as, as you probably know, it, to my mind, it's, it's, it's the most, Historic stadium, probably certainly in the Iron Man, but maybe in the UK. Uh, there's so many, there's so many elements of the the story of Ireland and Northern Ireland that, that the club sort of touches. If you consider the Blitz, the Troubles, the Vienna Cup itself, uh, the two World Wars that were were you know were intrinsically linked to the shipyard and Titanic subsequently as well. So, so I, I ended up going down to have the grains on one night when we were probably should have a barbecue here uh, to water the pitch and I was standing, it was a beautiful May, May evening and the sun was sort of behind the sky and the water was sort of glistening and I started looking at the stadium in a different light and uh, and that kind of triggered the interest in writing the first book which was there's a green sport called the Oval which is taken from the title of a, an old Glenporn song and that went down really really well you know Things. So say you, you know you're always learning, you know, 56 now still finding things out. So uh, so so that that was the first book, and as I say, that, that you know, people still talk about it, people stop in the matches and say, I really enjoyed that, whatever. So uh, I had no I had no plans, I had no plans whatsoever to write another one until there was a series of events which which sort of compelled me to do it, you know. And that's, so you, uh, so you, you followed that up then with one Saturday before the war, and you've you've yeah. mentioned already you're you're far into writing. This is your second book. I've read both of them; they're excellent. Oh, uh, thank you. Despite thank you. being from the other side of the fence in the football <laughs> fraternity, you know, but they are excellent books. See, that's um, a great accolade. That's the best accolade to take. You know, I, I I would have thought so too. Yeah, and, you, yeah. and, you, and you've also mentioned the Vienna Cup there as well. So mm-hmm. let's try and set the scene for this story if we can. So what sort of club? Was Glentorn Football Club in 1914? Well, in 1914, the club was sort of they were in the ascendancy. They were they were still a new club. Uh, bear in mind that had been founded in 1882. Uh, the first 20 or so years hadn't been they hadn't been successful or they hadn't been easy for the club. The club almost folded on several occasions, and that was down primarily to the inability to find a football ground in East Belfast that could accommodate the number of people who wanted see them. Uh, so after after leaving Ormo Park, uh, the club the club moved to uh, a couple of a couple of locations within East Belfast. Uh, one of a clue in place and the other just off Madrid Street, between Madrid Street and Tantmore Tantmore Avenue. But everywhere they went, uh, obviously if, if you if you've a football pitch sized piece of ground with the amount of people who were coming in from the country to find work in East Belfast and the amount of houses you were going to sell it for 
chemo and had the rental of the houses. So, so everywhere they went, and when they ended up in Mersey Street, Mersey Street was the most inhospitable, you'd probably say it probably still is, but, but uh, uh, the most inhospitable sort of uh, location they, they'd even have a football club. So, so players and supporters alike would come down and clear, clear the ground at bull rushes, and it was swampland, it was, it was Marcus Slobland back in the day, uh, reclaimed land. And, uh, and so this was always continually, the flooding of the area, which is a perennial problem, was, was a problem uh, back then as well. But I think the one thing which was, which was in, in train was when, when, when I looked into the story that there was no doubt that if you were an industrialist, a uh, factory owner you know, in, in the shipyard or, or any of the engineering works, that an active workforce uh, is, is a happy workforce, a productive workforce is a happy, and, and little by little, these, these factory owners and, and you know, Gustav Wolf and Harland, uh, they obviously realized that if they had a football team which the workforce could associate with, then they were doing well then in turn productivity. And uh, it's a correlation between the distilleries as well, Avenue and, and places like that in the Dunedin distillery. So if you, if, if you had a football team, people could relate to, these guys work in amongst them. So slowly and, and surely, wealthy middle-class men took the, the running of the club on. And in and around 1900, they revolutionised the sort of set of the club with the share issue. And, and there was money ploughed into the club. Archibald Leach came in, a, a famous Scottish football architect who, who was then Goodison, Mo Trafford, uh, came and built the stands in 1909 and, and it became this vibrant from, from struggling to find a place to actually play a game of football. Uh, money was pumped in, shares, and, and the thing which had fascinated me was that the wealthy industrialists and the three different classes, you the working class, were all owners of the club, you know, so you could have, you could have Sexton JP and stand beside a guy from D Street who was just a labourer in the shipyard, but they would all feel this ownership of the club. So, so at, at, at the time where the story set, the club was vibrant. It was run by a, a, a group of directors who were forward-thinking men of insight who wanted, who undoubtedly wanted Glencorn to be the best club in Ireland. So with all that being said then, I mean, how was it that Glentorn Football Club, out of all the clubs in Irish football, got an invitation then to go to Europe in 1914? Straightforward. Right place, right time. Uh, <laughs> The, the Glens, for all their sort of, you, you, you know, gung-ho sort of forward, have never, never won the Irish Cup. They've been in three, three times, three times. Uh, they've, they've won the Irish League. But the Irish Cup was considered this blue ribbon event. And it just so happens that Glentorn won the Irish Cup for the first time at the, in the same season as, as Ireland had won the Home International Championships for the first time. Now, on the continent, uh, English football was considered, obviously, as, as the best in the world. And, and when Ireland won the Home International Championship, this raised eyebrows among, amongst legislators in, in Central Europe. Uh, and, and the assumption was, and it pans out in the newspapers at the time, the, the, the perception was that Irish football is therefore better than English football. There must have been something different. So when the organisers of, of these annual tournaments that took place all across Europe were looking for what they perceived, and this is incredible, but yet again, it's, it's, it's backed up by what they said in the papers at the time, were looking for the best club side in the world. Uh, they looked at Glenn Thorne, who had won the league two seasons previously on the bounce, and, and then had gone and won the Irish Cup. Uh, they'd won the Irish Cup in, in March, so... so Pretty much, it appeared in the newspapers that this this was the team, and and so so these two Austrian businessmen just just decided to send the invitation. And in doing that, they lined up Burnley, who had won the FA Cup, Celtic, who had won the Scottish Cup, and the perception was that Irish football was in power. So the invitation went to Glentor. At any other club of one of that year, you know, they would have got the invitation. So being a local football fan myself. The the legend of the Vienna Cup has been around for as long as I can remember. All sorts of versions of the story being thrown at me as a Linfield fan. <laughs> but what I wondered while I was reading this book, and you answered in the book, uh, but why is it taken so long for the for the real full story to emerge? I, I, I think 
Jason, if, if this if this story had have taken place at any other time, like in 1928 or 1932, for example, it just wouldn't have been such an epic tale. It's because it's it's because it bookended, you know, you, you've Titanic and Home Rule. Uh, you know, you know, you've 1910, 1911, 1912, and and the maelstrom of turmoil and at East Belfast, nobody knows more than you what, what the, you know the maelstrom of sort of in East Belfast at that, that time. Uh, but these guys don't really get any opportunity whatsoever to enjoy their success, enjoy their victory, because they step off the train coming back to York Street in June. And, and lo and behold, you know, within within three months, the world's, the world's at war. And, and some of the players, you know, there's undoubted tragedy right across the whole sort of playing roster, if you like. And you know, it, it was just it was just put to the side. There, there was pride. There, there, there always had been pride at the club. You know, even I found a speech by the chairman in 1933, who was Joseph Shaw, who'd gone on the, who was one of the legislators, one of the one of the secretary who had organised the trip, and he had said that he was he was so proud uh, of of their achievements. That you know, some 20 years later, that he kept the Vienna Cup at his home, and that was a significant thing in itself. You know. With events that would happen sort of later on, but it was just it was just when I when when I went to look when I went to look at the story, there's only about six or seven newspaper reports that you can find on it in in, in Belfast, you know, and bizarrely one in the Lauren Times, but but that's it. And uh, but when you go to Austria and and you go to the Austrian National Library and the Berlin National Library and and Hungary. There's there's rafts of reports, newspaper copy. I was I, I was actually gobsmacked at how big a deal it was. You know, certainly was, certainly the people who who had invited the clans to go. Was that something that you did? Then did you travel to Austria, or did you do this? Was this online based research? I, I was totally. It was it was down to the it was down to the visit of Gianni Infantino to the Oval uh, last year. Uh, there, there was a conference, and Gianni Infantino was the head of FIFA, the most important man in, in world football. And he'd been at a conference uh, up, at, up at Culloden and on a Saturday I decided to take in a game at the Oval. I normally do the tours, but I wasn't doing the tour that day. And, and the chairman phoned me up and he said, look, I'll show him around, I'll show him around the boardroom. And he phoned me after the match and he said, look, this guy was intrigued by the story of the Vienna Cup when I showed him it. And, and, and he said, uh, we, we, we would really, really like to to take the Vienna Cup and put it on display at the World Football Museum. And Stephen, Stephen said to me, you know, we don't really know that much, you know, so no better man than you to start digging, you know. And and it was the most speculative punt ever. Uh, I discovered statistics by a guy called Xavier, Xavier Garcia, Javier Garcia, who had recorded just the statistics of it, but uh, I couldn't find where he was in the world. I started, I started messaging Javier Garcia's on Facebook going, are you, are you, you know, if I saw any connection with football at all, and I've got a pile of like random email addresses that, you know, I thought, and I, not thinking, you know, in, in a blue moon that, that anything would come back. And within four hours of me putting out all these messages, this guy came back and he went, yeah, I'm the guy that researched that. And he went, oh, you've been looking in the wrong place. He says, where you need to go? And he sent me the link. So I'm sitting in the house and carried off. And, and this guy sends me the link that gets me access to the Austrian National Library and all their, all their newspaper archive. And as you can imagine, so Austria covers Berlin. And and, and even he, he, he gives me like the Willy Wonka ticket. This is, you know, this is fantastic stuff. And then he goes, I've worked with a guy called Tom Soderman in Prague. And it turns out he's fascinated by the story of DFC, which are one of the teams going to play, the, the Jewish team. And he said, give, give, give him a bell and, uh, and see, if, see if you can sort of connect with him, you know. And away we went, you know, that was, that was, that was me up and running. And it was open to down. So then having received um, their invitation, the Glens began this pioneering journey on uh, the 18th of May, 1914 into Europe. And at this point in the book, you've decided to add some I would describe artistic license to the story. Um, and at times it does read um, like a very good historical novel, it has to be oh, said. But I'm, I'm wondering what, what was the thinking behind that approach? Was it an attempt to try, and, to try and draw out some of the characters who were involved in the story? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I got to a point where they were on the platform. Uh, 
uh, on, on the 18th of May uh, at York Street Station. And I, I had, had all their names written out. And, I'm, and, I, and I actually looked and I went, do you know what you have here? You've, you've got Ulstermen, Irishmen, Scotsmen, an Englishman, Protestants, Catholics, working class, middle class. Uh, you know, 90 percent of these guys, you can you could, you know, in a one and a half mile radius of Valley McCarran that came from the streets. But then then, then you've got a goalkeeper, Leslie Murphy, who's born in Donnemana, his father's a royal Royal Irish Constabulary constable who's who's posted south and and then you find his mother dying and he, he you know his his sisters end up in and like an orphanage and down Patrick sort of thing, you know, and, and I, so I've got this big strap in country Donna Mana man, you know, and 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 then I've got I've got Sammy Napier from Shadali Street and guys have come in from the country, what you know, William Emerson, I've got Hoffman Scraggs, who's Swiss, who 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 lives in who lives in Erskine Street and and I'm going I, I'm going to myself, you know, are are you just gonna, you know, actually put their names in their positions and make it a very, very bland. Because I could see the character in them, you know, that Paddy, Paddy McCann, you know, so, so Paddy McCann's the captain. Paddy McCann is a three times club All-Ireland GAA champion, you know, with the Dolphins and the, the Dolphins selection and the Geraldines down in Dublin before he comes north to play for Belfast Celtic and subsequently and he's idolised by the crowd. The crowd love this guy, you know, and this, the, 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 so Paddy's, Paddy's from the short strand, the captain. You, you know, when I read about him, he he does this Cantona thing where there's a guy giving him powders for Belfast Celtic during one of the games at the Oval. You know, and he jumps the fence, climbs the terrace, grabs a guy, you know, wrestles him down, gives him the, the police constable and tells him to throw him out of the Oval. So they love him, you know. And So I've got this eclectic mix of people. And it's, it's you, you know, the Shaws, for example, are born in Cypress Avenue. You know, one of the big opulent houses, and so 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 they're living there, and and then you've got James Reed, who's in Hanford Street, and there's there's twelve in his family in one of the houses in Hanford Street, and they're all pretty much adults. You know, when you when you look at the census and see all these, there's twelve people living in this house in Hanford Street. You, you know, it it would have been remiss of me not to add a bit of, you know, a, a bit of color into that. You know, Duker Boyd's fifteen and a half. He. He, well, I, we actually went to his homestead, his his farmhouse in, in Tullykitta, which is outside Clock Mills. We took the Vienna Cup one day up to Clock Mills. And, and it's, there's a water wheel and a, you know, an old carpenter shop and things like that there. And I think once you've, once you've seen where they live and what, you know, it, it's like the main, it's, it's mind blowing to me that there's guys in their 30s, 15 year olds and go off in this mad adventure. So, so that's, yeah, you know, it, it came very easily, sort of putting words into their mouth. You know, I, I kind of still have I've lived with these men for the last, <laughs> the last sort of ten months. You know, so following their obligatory pub crawl, it seems in in Germany, yeah. <laughs> the, team, the team was required to get down to business. Um, and I'm wondering then, what was the format? Uh, for the competition because it seems to be was it even a competition there seems to be a bit of confusion about how the whole thing was going to play out what was the what was the fixtures and results like for the Glens throughout this tour well there, there's always this perception that it's like a modern day sort of round robin tournament and that's not the case it uh, the, the whole the, the, the whole focus was the, these two Jewish uh, these two Jewish businessmen who were called Mouther and Hoffman, uh, were, were directors of First Vienna FC. And, and every year they invited teams. And, and the, 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 that was like the two-pronged thing. Firstly, it was a money spinner. They would, they, they, would, they would bring teams over because over that Pentecost week, which was a holiday period, everybody was off. So they put on entertainment. And people marveled at this new style of football. And people were intrigued by the British way of playing football. And and the tactics were different. The, 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 the sort of you know, even the Glens played five up front with three halfbacks. So so when you're going forward, like there's eight, you know, there's eight there's eight people attacking the goal, you know, and 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 so so they love this type of vibe. But everything was focused around a game in Vienna, the, the first game in Vienna. But when when they announced that sort of game torn the you know, the champions of all Ireland, they're, they're, they're revered in the papers. 
are are arriving and obviously other clubs sort of pick up the you know the opportunity to bring DFC DFC Prague which is a say we're Jewish team uh, uh, they 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 sent the invitation too but but they were clever as well I found out that they actually took insurance out with Lloyd's in London that if the that if the thing sort of fell in its face they, they wouldn't lose out in money. Uh, and then Hertha Berlin, obviously. So, so the, the games leading up uh, to this game in Vienna are, are DFC Prague, which which the Glens lose four three in the last minutes. Uh, it's it's a real ding dong hustle, and the, the Glens kind of get hammered in the press afterwards. And, and no one takes into account that these guys have been travelling like solid from Monday evening. You know, in modern day, if I said you get yourself from York Street Station to Prague from on, on a Monday night in York Street, and you need to be in Prague at like half three on Wednesday afternoon. That's that's it's insane that they actually get there at all, you know. And as you rightly say, they still have time to sort of stop off at the beer hall and Leipzig and, and miss their train and, and whatever, you know. So they're struggling with a huge hangover, they're struggling with 1700 miles of travel. So they lose that first game 4 3. They get up the next day, so shake themselves down and go to Berlin. And and the hospitality, it's, it's it's an amazing thing when I read when I read the newspaper reports. Uh the night before they had a they had a reception for the Glens, it sort of hurt the team and the officials whenever. And it's it's recorded that they all sang God save the king together. And I, I it's actually only when I looked further on what happened to the players, but this must be one of the last instances when God save the king is sung in Berlin before the outbreak of World War One. And, you know, to my mind, these guys have a few beers the night before. They're, you know, they've arms around each other's shoulders. There's a bit of singing, you know. And incredibly, later on down the line, their adversaries in the football field. And, and then a year later, actually, physically, some of them are adversaries on the Western Front. So they lose... They lose the game in Prague four three. They then go on to win four one. I think it is in, in four 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 one. Heard that it, it, it's it's in in the newspapers at the time. It was the greatest, the best game of football ever seen in Berlin. When you read that they get off to a, a bad start, you know there's a bit of penalty given against them. But they, but they gather themselves together and and, and batter her absolutely bad. You know, and when you consider that you know Germany at the time had a population of sixty four million. You know, and, and teams of that standard, and and the other thing that I found when so you know I got to see the photographs of these stadiums are beautiful, opulent, uh, marble walls, and the, the stadium later on that they go to play in. These these are, from, you know, and and you know as I know, all all the stadiums that the Irish teams would play in, you know. Windsor Park, you've got railway lines around it, you, you know, industrial sort of mills and, and sea view and, and whatever, even from down to like the Daily Mount and whatever. It's, it's all very, very urban and industrial sites, but these were playing like park lands and, you know, it was a serene. And, and I'm sure these guys coming out of East Belfast have never seen anything like this, you know. Certainly in Prague, there's like an elevator, you know, like a travelator that takes the supporters up the you know, from from, from from like sea level up into the Latina plateau. And they get on this escalator and they go up, you know, it's just a totally different world. So yeah, that that, that, that absolutely bash Berlin and then and then they uh, they arrive in Vienna and the, a, a lovely thing when they arrive in Vienna, the two organizers are interviewed and said that they they're being really, really played. They can't believe how sick the whole party is, but by sick the main of them on the Raza again, you know, so they roll off the train in Berlin and, and it says most of them spend the next day in bed. And they've got this this epic game, which is for the Vienna Cup on the Wednesday, which which they, you know, they have to contest. And uh, as it turns out, they're meant to play another team in Vienna on the Saturday, but the game ends in a 1-1 draw, this this Wednesday game and trophies struck for it and whatever. Celtic and Burnley end in the 1-1 draw. They're, they're, playing, they're also playing in Hungary at the same time. And, and it ends up in a complete... They're, they're beating seven bells out of each other. What was meant to be a friendly in Budapest turns out to be this... You know, it, 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 was, it was called at the time the Battle of Britain. And it was so acrimonious that they just couldn't play. Extra time wasn't a thing, but 
But I think one of the Burnley players said, no, I, I just want extra time so I can take you on the one on Saturday players. I didn't care about the football. So so the, the Viennese was kind of mindful that this wasn't an option. So so that game was drawn 1-1. And yet again, the Glens didn't get, you know, great press because people were expecting this. You know, Harlem Globetrotters coming to sort of, you know, show them the style of football, which they didn't get. So... They scratched the game against the, the other the other Viennese team on the Saturday and replayed for the cup again. And I think there, 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 there's there's one there's one piece, there's one reporter writes that the Glen Torn team look overweight and out of condition. I, I, I managed to find photographs of them lining up in Berlin uh, before the game, a couple of days ago. And these are wary shipyard men with there's not a pickle on them, they're hard as nails and and I, I, I think they're stung so badly by the criticism that, that, that they just play out of their skins and, and they win the game 5-0, you know. And, and yet again, the press turned completely and kind of go, no, this is, this is sensational, the style of play. And a funny story and, about the goalkeeper going AWOL before the yeah, game as well. Mad, absolutely mad. Yeah, it, it, it turns out, and these are the things that hang earth. So, so the, the, the big guy, Leslie Murphy, from, from Donovan, he goes out, and it's lovely the way they sort of, the, the, the Australians word it, but he goes out in inverted commas sightseeing on the afternoon before the match and, and just doesn't turn up, doesn't come back, doesn't. So so the Glens are left with, with which is probably the biggest match there, you, you know, on for the first time in European soil and, and the dignitaries that go to these games because, my goodness, you've, you've Baron von Ringhofer, the, the, the richest man in Austria, you've, Frankfurt Forbes, the British ambassadors there. Uh, you have Karl Schwartz, the, the German vice consul, who is later responsible for the Anschluss. Uh, and all these, all these dignitaries turn up, Glenn Thorne turn up actually at the game for the Vienna Cup, and Murphy still hasn't appeared. He's, he's nowhere to be seen. And it's, it's like one of those, is there a doctor in the house? Because Burnley, who are playing the next day, actually come to watch the game. So there are discussions between the, the, the Glenthorne directors who hugely embarrassed. And Burnley have two goalkeepers in the squad, one of which is a guy called Ronnie Sewell, who, who had previously, three months previously, won the FA Cup final against Liverpool and Nets. So, so they ask if they can borrow this goalkeeper. And, and Ronnie Sewell, who's, the, and, you know, it says that all his, all his teammates were completely bemused by him having to go down, get kitted out and turn out for the Glens. In this in this contest, and and the other thing which Sewell brought to the party was, and I didn't realise this, that the Europeans had never seen a goalkeeper punching a ball out, and this was Sewell's forte that he could steam it out of the sort of you know out the edge of his penalty area, punch the ball, and it said he punched it right out, and they they, they were fascinated by this, you know, so so yeah, the goalkeeper that would, the goalkeeper that wins the Vienna Cup is an English international. Uh, and, and not now, now Murphy's back in the squad the next day. He turns up and you know no no reason ever given, no no excuse, no he's just back in the team for for another two matches later on that they hadn't even planned to actually sort of undertake. So I mean, when when I read that story, there was a couple of things that that struck me. One was you know a further development in the long relationship between Glen Torn and Burnley. First yeah. of all, and second yeah. of all, the name Sewell, which has long been synonymous with Glen Torn Football Club. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, as you know, Tommy's a you know the, the photographer at the club and whatever. It, uh, and it's it's just it's just incredible. It's it's you know one of those pub quiz questions. You know what's the FA Cup winning? It's 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 so surreal that you know and and like where did Murphy go? Who was he with? What did he do? You, you know, what what was the atmosphere like when he rolled into the hotel, you know, as well? And the other the other thing, you know, when as regards to hotels, these were the most palatial hotels that they, they, they put Glen Torn up in. Uh, you know, later on in life, one of the hotels uh, in in Prague, like the Rolling Stones would stay there, Gina Lawler Bridge, all the movie stars. Glen Torn were the first big stars and the bizarre just but they were the first and and this this just appealed to me so much because I knew that these guys bathed in their yards you know when Stephen you know 
kettles of hot water and tin baths and went to Tempmore Avenue maybe at the weekend to, to scrub the grain of the shipyard off them, you know. And all of a sudden, so you've got, you know, they've been put into these rooms, photographs of the rooms, they're stunning. They've, they've got to come to terms with food. You know, the food must be so far, for them to take that on, and, and whilst, whilst they're actually in Prague at the start of the tour, they get an invitation to play another two matches. So, so after this Vienna, this, this match on Saturday, it was like relaxing shop afterwards. It was, it was meant to be, right, that's it, job done. Couple of days in Vienna, go out, you know, see the sights and, 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 and try to let your hair down. And we'll head back to Belfast on the Monday and, and get ourselves back. But, but the Hungarian FA kind of decided that they would jump in on it too. And, and so they sent an invitation saying, madly again, do you fancy another two games the day after you win the Vienna Cup on a Sunday in, in Pressburg, which is now Bratislava, and then on the Monday, if you want to come from Bratislava to Budapest, we'll, 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 we'll play a game against you there. And they put, and, and the big thing, so at this stage, they're, they're, they're just chasing the dollar because there's money, there's money at stake here. These guys are shipyard workers' wages. Uh, for the most part, they're all sort of either on scale or just, you know, are artisan laborers. So this is a chance of a lifetime. And I'm sure they kind of go, right, lads, what are we going to do? You know? And and the money's the money's too good to say no to. So so the, 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 they actually leave Austria, they go a paddle steamer up the Danube. That itself the most stunning scenery in, in Europe, you know, when you're coming from with these how far would these men have travelled before that? You know, maybe to Dublin to represent the Danes. Some had played in England, but their journeys wouldn't have been anything like this. This is dream world to them, you know. So they go to Pressburg, nursing an, yet again another hangover the next morning, you know, and, and I actually had to get the Bradshaw's Continental European tour guide. And I got so obsessed by it that it was, you know, I can tell you the steamboat times and on a Sunday and you know, in, in 1913, 14, from from Vienna up the up the Bratislava, you know. So I, I actually tracked their whole journey. Uh, so they go they go and they play this team from Hungary in in Pressburg. But before the match starts, they're introduced to this 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 noble uh, called Archduke Albrecht, who is is of the Habsburg dynasty. He's he's a relative of Franz Ferdinand, you know, and. And, and so they're getting right up close to where the action is here. You know, I, I, I say in the book, like, you know, are they going to believe us when we'll go back to the shipyard on Monday? Like, it's, it's just insane. You've, you've alluded to it already. They're obviously the, the, they're on their way towards Budapest. The two games, you know, they almost seemed irrelevant then at that point because the, the, the players themselves are dead on their feet. But the interesting thing for me was that this was the team heading into the mouth of the beginning of the First World War. And you tell an interesting story about how they kind of have to make this hasty retreat uh, back to Belfast. Can you, can you say something about that? We, we had known, uh, part, part, of this, part of this lovely story is we had managed to track down some of the relatives of the team. And they, they've been absolutely fascinated. And, and one, of the, one of the players, George, George Farrett, uh, we, we actually managed to track down his, his two sons. Uh, one, one, one is now in Palmerston Nursing Home. Uh, he was 100 last year, and his, his brother passed away sadly a couple of years ago. So when we had the uh, when we had the 100th anniversary, we invited them to the City Hall in, in 2014. And I got the chance to sit and speak to, to, to George George Jr., if you like. He was maybe, maybe 84 then, you know. And... and he sort of leaned on them and he says, you do know after the game finished, and his words, he says, they had to run like hell. He says they had to, he says they had to run for their lives because the political, you know, the, the political situation had deteriorated and the talk around the place and, and they were advised just to get back whatever. So they abandoned the, the, the initial route that the Glens take, which is a surreal route. They go down through England and they go to Vlissingen and Holland uh, and then to Berlin and whatever. They abandoned that and they ended up, according to George, uh, they end up on the Belgium coastline uh, on the way back. So they get to Belgium and, and, and then eventually tumble off this, you know, tumble off, off the train back in there. But, but he, he says that his, uh, his dad told him that they had, to, they had to run for their lives, you know. 
it must have been seriously tense there, you know. And and at that stage, it was like it beat seven 0 in the last game, and the the the, the report on the match says these guys are actually literally on their knees, begging the referee to stop the match. They're so exhausted, and uh, and and they, they they actually did. They got they got ridiculed yet again with no consideration for the amount of games they played, no, no consideration of the journey they've taken, certainly no consideration for the fact that although they were professionals. You know, the Gaines had a call on the, you know, Harlan Wilson and, and Bergman Clark had the call on their time and their families and whatever, you know, but but they got pilloried for the 7 nil, seven, sorry, excuse me, uh, 7 seven nil, you know, drubbing, if you like, and they appeased the, the, the journalists that are gathered, the, the one one of the directors uh, said, look, we'll be back next year, we'll come back, we'll play you, you know, this is, we're embarrassed for this too, but. It's it's a feat of modern endurance, you know, that I don't think anybody can undertake. Never mind this thirteen men for the East. You know. And so, after such an uplifting story, I think you know this remarkable journey from Belfast through Europe, all the miles that they cover, the games that they play, the games that they win, the cups that they win. The story then starts to take a bit of a dark twist, as I saw it, which kind of began with this hasty retreat back to Belfast. But then also, then with players like Paddy McCann, his his mm-hmm. wife, um, yeah. uh, dying shortly after, some of the players on on all the teams, you know, finding themselves on both sides uh, of the Great War, and also some of them then touched by the Second World War as well. Can you say something about that? Yeah, well, no, no, you're you're hundred percent right. They, they, they pretty much get off the train, and, and the, the the first thing that the captain has to endure is the sudden passing of his of his wife two weeks after he arrives back, and we couldn't comprehend this in modern times, but he loses his son. He, he, you know, you know, yet again, the rates of infant mortality in Belfast and East Belfast at, 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 that, at that time were phenomenal. And there were several players who had lost sons and daughters, you know, in, in infancy. So McCann loses his son in January. Uh, he continues to play. I don't think he misses a match even. You, you know, he actually, he plays in the Irish Cup final, uh, goes out to Vienna, comes back to find his wife, Bill, and she passes away. Uh, two weeks later, uh, he loses all interest, um, and 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 then and then things deteriorate. Obviously, Franz Ferdinand's assassinated, and and the world's at war, and and football takes on a different dynamic. Uh, and and in reading the stories, it would appear that football games were used as as recruiting grounds for for young men. Obviously, there's your you know there's they're the type of people who you obviously want to target that. The, the sign up, you know, and that that actually affects it. Well, it affects two players. One player who doesn't travel uh, because bizarrely he had actually been on another like a road tour, if you like, uh, which is a guy called Hugh Ansley. So Hugh Ansley doesn't travel as part of the team. He's replaced by one of the liners. But both he and then he's a fullback. He and the goalkeeper Leslie Murphy, uh, and and I think it's I think it's something to do with a rally that takes place at at Grosvenor Park. Where Sergeant Summers, who's, who's the winner of the Victoria Cross, uh, is is paraded around the park, and shortly after, we we'll find a newspaper article in Down Patrick, where Leslie Murphy has come back to. I, I don't know whether that that rally before the game falling to United City sort of, you know, triggered something with him, but he he goes and signs signs on with the South Irish Horse. Ansley signs on with the North Irish Horse, and the strange the strange sort of dichotomy of, of it of it all is that when I looked at some of the Hertha Berlin players, many of them did exactly the same thing. Uh, and in actual fact that the, the centre forward, Reggie Voigt, who, who who played for Hertha, who was their yeah, you know, their star player, German international, uh, he ends up being killed in the trenches at Verdun. And and several and, and there are instances where where both both Murphy and and some of the players in the Hertha team could have faced each other along the song and some random, you know, certainly some of the dignitaries that they met ended up being sort of senior officers in the, in the German army as well, you know. So, yeah, I, I, I couldn't stop them, you know, I actually couldn't stop sort of finding out what happens to these guys. And, uh, and when I looked at some of the people that they met, some of the people they played against, you're, you're 100% right. The, the, the groundsman, for example, at, at the UFC Prague, he was, I found out that he was taken in the transports uh, and, and he was he was executed, him and his wife were executed in the Holocaust. 
two of the two of the players also who played in the Hungarian Select Eleven, uh, the last game, where where also one was a, one was assassinated by the SAS, and, and another was 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 part of the, as I say, part of the, the Holocaust as well. He was, and even like it wasn't Leslie Murphy survived the First World War, and, and even even that, he he had this this incredible sense of duty. You know, his father being an, an, an RIC constable and his brother, and his two brothers served as well, but. But he he then moves to England. He gets he plays for Reading for a time, and uh, he ends up signing on as an ARP in World War Two uh, in Kensington, you know, and dies a short time after the war. You know. So they all some some of them fall in hard times. Some of them uh, one one of David Davy Liner, for example, from Flora Street signs for Manchester United, you know. And so there's a Manchester United player, you know, that, that came from Flora Street, and then Jordy Best, as I say, Renda. And and as I say, we 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 managed to trace them pretty much all. Willie McAlpine, the the, the right back, he 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 got onto the boat in nineteen twenty three and and made his life in America. And we, we tracked him around America as well. You know, he worked on the boats and things like that. And amazingly, you know, one of one of the people who they encounter on the tour um, was actually executed later for attempting to assassinate uh, Hitler. Is that right? Yeah. That I actually had to stop the book, and, and, and I was about to press the button to sort of go print the book, you know. And I made contact with this uh, yet another totally speculative punt. So the Liner boys are from Flora Street, and there's David and Roland. So Roland Liner, L Y N E R, is quite a, a unique name. So I started scarring everywhere, and I found an architect in Edinburgh called Roland Liner League. And through persistence through COVID and whatever, because his, his office was closed, but he was on the trust of a, of a, of a theatre company in Leith. And I phoned him, and, and the guy answered the phone. He went, yeah, he still is, but he's, he's living in Aberdeen, but I'll give you his email. So I, I wrote him this letter, and I went, you know, are you by chance? I wrote him an email and said, are you by chance? And he came back, and he went, yeah, but we had no idea. He said, I, I knew McGrath. This is his granddad. He says, I knew McGrath was a footballer. He had a couple of his medals. He started talking to his, his, his cousin and whatever, and, and all these stories started coming back. And right at the very last minute, he said to me, Oh, there's there's just one thing that we were talking about the other night. Uh, Magranda told us that while he was in Germany, he met this German Baron, this this von Leiner, L-Y-N-A-R, who was adamant that they were linked together, that they were connected. And he said that he, he was so he was so embarrassed by the fact that he was linked to this German. But when he came back, obviously World War One broke out. Uh, it was a story he was never going to say. By the way, we think we're from sort of German nobility, you know, in and around East Belfast sort of thing. But they, they didn't actually know why, why he'd been in Germany. That, that, that hadn't sort of crossed their mind that he'd been there with football. But he made some inquiries in Germany and then we followed it up. And it turns out that this Baron von Leiner not only fought in World War I, but was part of the German High Command in World War II and was eventually in 1944 was arrested and executed for his part in an attempt to execute, assassinate Adolf Hitler, which, you know, had I have hit the button, that story, so, so these guys get to meet the man, you know, and, and now even as Roland says, now we can't tell the story that we met, you know, we met the man who tried to, tried to assassinate Adolf Hitler, you know. So obviously, more recently, uh, Glenn Torn have begun writing a new chapter, you might say, of their history with uh, new financial backing, an overhaul of the playing squad, potentially an overhaul of the stadium coming in the future as well. But what I'm wondering is how, how important is the story of the Vienna Cup to the current club of 2021? It's, it's, it's huge, actually. And it's amazing when you speak to younger supporters. And, and that, that, that's what I love. And that's why this is worth doing. And every club should do it. Every club should. Because younger supporters love these tales as sort of, you know, daring do and and you know, I, I, I can I can meet out in the street a twenty year old Glenthorne supporter and go, you know, the Detroit Cougars, what do you, they'll they'll know exactly what they did. Our teenagers and our younger supporters think, you know, boys and girls, men and women, they know about the Vienna Cup. They know more now, but but it was always in the psyche. It was always even when I was growing up and, and there was always this sort of that's the first European team, you know, and, and that's that's always gonna be sort of you know, even the West Auckland thing would have happened. And actually, I spoke to uh, 
I spoke to the head historian of FIFA and he said, don't get, don't get hung up on that. You know, you are the first professional football club to bring a trophy back from mainland Europe. But our, our supporters have, have, have always known about it. it. It was put on, it was actually, I found this out after the book, it was on display in the Albert Bar for, for years, you know, after the war. It just sat in the Albert Bar. This is one of the most, according to FIFA, not their words, not mine, this is one of the most, this, this, this is where European club trophy competition starts with this trophy. And it sat behind the bar in the Albert for, 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 for I don't know how long. You know, plus plus the other lovely story, which it's it's the only it's the only piece of Glentorn memorabilia artifact which survives the Blitz because, as I say, the chairman kept it in his in his house. So when the Glensleys are kept their photographs, their records, and everything, and in May nineteen forty one, the Vienna Cup survives. So it's it's this iconic symbol of you know resurgence, if you like. But what 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 I have found is since we've started getting. An inordinate amount of European visitors coming to the ground. They're fascinated by it. They they just they just can't believe it, you know. So so I I think I think no, you know, I I there were Vienna, Vienna 1914 flags at 20 years ago being brought to the match, you know what I mean? That's, uh, and as I say, it was on it was on the Muron Bright Street and, and things like that, you know. So it's it's just part of it's something I think that not only Glen Torrance should be proud of. East Belfast should be very proud of these men for what they, you know, they kind of knew what they were getting into and they went off and, you know, trailblazing sort of pioneers. And it's it's these guys sitting around a smoky boardroom in, in East Belfast in, in March 1914 and going, well, what's the pros and what are the cons and how do we do this? And 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 this this one man in particular, you know, the next time you open a packet of Shaw's sweets, like Joseph Shaw, the Shaw family from Campmore Avenue that, that ran the confectionery. He was the son of the owner, and this this guy, this guy is on his capacity to organise this and get these men, you know, and they're all young men, you know, a lot of them are old guys too, to actually get them out across Europe and do what they do, beat beat Hearth of Berlin in their own backyard, you know, in front of what I think I think it's six and a half seven thousand people.